welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. A happy new year to all our listeners. This is our famous end-of-year show, the one where the contributors discuss 2023 and try not to ignore Jeff's outrageous opinions. Now that is too much to ask, even in the festive period. Apart from the usual banter, we'll be revealing our individual top five films as well as the At The Flicks combined top seven. Seven, is that right? Hey, I had to work it to seven, otherwise none of my choices would have been included. Ah, typical Jeff cheating again. It's not cheating, Graham. It's just changing the conditions for my benefit. (laughs) Okay, right. Well, apart from Jeff cheating, we also have a fun face-off between Jeff and Phil and a special guest to talk about the science fiction films of 2023. I'm Jeff, a lover of the 70s, political thrillers, and winding up my fellow reviewers, especially Neil. I'm Graham. Science fiction and literary adaptations are my cinematic passion, and removing Jeff's more incendiary outbursts. Hi, I'm Neil, and I love animation, foreign films, and getting wound up by... Jeff, have you been editing my script again? Will you stop that? Hi, I'm Phil. I love all kinds of films, but I'm passionate about deep diving into directors' back catalogues and then arguing with Jeff over them. Hi, I'm Darren, and I'll watch anything from Hollywood classics to cheap and sleazy exploitation movies. I also specialise in loving movies that make everybody else's eyes roll. Hi, I'm Declan, the presenter of the podcast Carry On Streaming, which the At The Flix team asked me to do. I love original films and often prefer small, independent, arthouse-type films. I hope everyone listening had a great Christmas. We have so much to pack into this end-of-year show, we are, yet again, going to split it into two halves. This half of the show, which we will sneakily call Part 1, will build up the suspense of what could possibly be our top films. And trust me, listeners, there are some surprises. Recently, Jeff and Graham caught up with writer and broadcaster Paul Rincon to talk about the science films of 2023. Over to Jeff to introduce Paul. Welcome to the part of the show where we talk the science fiction films of 2023. Yes, the year where superhero films disappeared into their alternative realities. How sad. The biggest science hit of the year was a biopic, basically men talking in rooms, and made almost a billion dollars. A science fiction film won the best film Oscar, And of course, there were far too many sequels. Joining us to talk about these and more, we are delighted to welcome broadcaster and writer Paul Rincon. Paul, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. How's your 2023 been? It's been, yeah, interesting. I think, uh, you know, cinematically, it's it's turned up some interesting films. I've I've enjoyed a lot of the science fiction films that we're going to talk about and, and Oppenheimer, which you made a reference to there. Yeah, it's been an interesting year. Right, let's go to films then. So, so Paul, what science and science fiction films have impressed you this year? I think top of my list uh, of the sci-fi films is really on the same theme that we've just been talk- talking about, The Creator. Um, mm. This was fascinating film from Gareth Edwards, who made Rogue One, and he's made some other sci-fi films, a uh, version of Godzilla and Monsters. Um, and he... Um, Basically, with the creator, I think it's a, a, a story that uh, he, he really sort of bought into. It's a, 
a world where the US or the West has rejected AI uh, following this uh, nuclear explosion, a bit of a Terminator um, scenario where a nuke has gone off in LA and they've banned all AI, got rid of it. But another sort of block uh, in the world called New Asia um, has continued to use AI and, and people are living alongside uh, essentially automatons. And essentially uh, the US or, or the West is trying to um, exterminate AI. And there, there are these groups um, that are made up of, of both humans and, and AIs that are leading a kind of resistance against this effort to um, to wipe them out. So it's kind of a, a, an ongoing war. And it raises all, all kinds of interesting questions. I, I think um, you'll, you'll know uh, the head of um, AI at Meta recently said, you need to separate intelligence from the desire to dominate, which goes back to the, all these kind of, you know, films like The Terminator about, you know, if, if AI becomes sentient, humans are finished. And there's this great line, uh, one of the characters, Harun, who's played by Ken Watanabe, says in the film, um, you know what ha- what will happen when we win this war against the West? Nothing. We just want to live in peace. But we don't know what's going to happen. It's an interesting exploration of those themes, and it's kind of a, a counterpoint to all those Rise of the Machines movies like, like The Terminator, I think. Yeah. It's a great little film, and I, I would like to see more in that world, but The difficulty we've got at the moment is when you've got an original science fiction film with a big budget, it just doesn't seem to cut through. Obviously, we're going to talk about superhero films in a minute, but Dune is uh, a recognised property. The creator was original. And I, I think Gareth Edwards is, when he breaks away from the franchise films, the Rogue One and the Godzilla films, you know, with this and with monsters, he's such a unique filmmaker. And I'd like to see him do more of these original ideas. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. It was it was so original, and the the look of the film that they went for this kind of Southeast Asian setting, combined with it was almost like some of the designs, the cityscapes were almost taking you back to that kind of nineteen seventies uh sci-fi art you know chris fox and all those yes amazing illustrators some some of the designs the vehicles and um you know it had a real unique vision of its own which i i i really liked um you know anything that kind of breaks away from the sort of standard blade runner you know cyberpunk kind of look of the future this had a, a really original vision behind it and um i i you know the the ideas, the performances were, were great, as you said, Alice and Janney. And just the, that that design, that that look of the film was, I, I, I just thought it was a, a real original entry in, in the genre. Sergeant Taylor, we are this close to winning the war. But the AI are developing a super weapon. Retrieve it. Or they win. I hope it finds its audience. Uh, it's it's now available digitally. Uh, it's in physical media in January, and I, I just hope it finds an audience and people come back to it time and again. It's a great little film. What else has impressed you, Paul? 
I think um, Across the Spider-Verse uh, I, I thought yes. was, was fun uh, as an animated film. I think there were so many multiverse films, you know, e- even following on from last year. Um, and, and this, I think, was one of the better ones. Um, it, it really plays, you know, so so much in, into this uh, this kind of world where Miles Morales has been a, a sort of alternative Spider-Man in the comic books for years, but hadn't made it onto the screen. And, um, you know, the, the way that he plays off Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy and all these other alternative characters, alternative Spider-Men and, and um, you know, other superheroes in, in the film uh, was wonderful. I mean, it's, it's this great journey into uh, this kind of world where they, there's a sort of agency that's headed up by a particular version of Spider-Man that goes and, um, you know, hunts down people who are kind of causing mischief in, in, in the multiverse and you find all, all these different, um, different worlds. And it, it's just jam packed with um, great references to other, other, you know, superhero films and, and Marvel sort of comic characters um, and a great story behind it, you know, great sort of voice acting behind it and characterization. And I, I really bought into the characters. It is just such a, so well done. Um, by Miller and, and Lord, the, the directors. What else is on your list, Paul? So there was one film that I didn't, got very mixed reviews, but I thought it was quite fun. And it, it is, unsurprisingly, another multiverse film and a superhero film as well. And it's The Flash. It was the, oh, yes. the, the last last hurrah of the DCEU before uh, James Gunn takes over. And um, I, I thought it was great. I, I thought it was really funny. Yeah, um, great mix of comedy and and serious notes, and I just thought, you know, whatever you, one thinks about the rest of the DCEU and how how that's been rolled out and and how it's conceived, I think in the same way that you have with Marvel, if you're going to do a standalone Flash film, that was the way to do it. I mean, he's yeah. a slightly comedic character, so it needs that comedy in there. I just thought sometimes the you know the jokes in these things don't land, but it, there are just some great little references of you know the the two flashes kind of playing off each other and the way that they've that he you know by going back in time he's he's altered the timeline and the jokes about you know Eric Stoltz not getting fired from Back to the Future <laughs> yeah. and then yes. basically yes. upended all all ladies movie casting hasn't he where, where they sort of yeah. have this joke about you know Kevin Bacon and Top Gun and yeah. it's it's great I I just I, I really enjoyed it and. Uh, yeah. We, we must be the only three. <laughs> it got absolutely panned. Michael Keaton as Batman. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you need to know. It was terrific, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Just yeah. such a great presence in, in the film. Yeah. The Michael Keaton resurgence. It's there. It's going. <laughs> it's time. Oh, he needs his own yeah. version. Another, another Michael Keaton film as an older yes. Batman, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Well, right. We're all pumped now. All three of us <laughs> positive for that one. Any anything else? Yeah, I mean, there was there was one that I I suppose um, is a strange one, but it's uh, the Hunger Games. So the the recent Hunger Games I saw was what I liked about it. it so in terms of the story, it's fairly standard. You know, if you've seen the other Hunger Games, it, it centers around this sort of most dangerous game or, or running man style uh, sort of arena scenario, you know, gladiators duking it out. They took this back in time 
and this is supposed to be a prequel uh, to the trilogy. I thought it was a, an interesting, complex way to um, to take this, you know, take the uh, franchise forward. So it centers around uh, President Snow and his um, younger years. And it's got, I think, like the creator, a really bold, interesting visual style, which I I kind of, I call Gilliam-esque because it's that 1930s, 40s mm. uh, style mixed with modern technology. And there's probably maybe a, an accurate description of it, maybe diesel punk or so, something like that. But I'll just call, call it Gilliam-esque because it reminds me of Brazil and 12 Monkeys and that, that sort of mixing of... I hadn't made that connection, but the production values are off the chart. I was watching it thinking, that's the Oscar for production right there. Yeah. It, it looks stunning. It was, wasn't it? And, um, you know, costume design and such attention to detail, you know, just the the interior of Snow's flat just reminded me of of Delicatessen, you know, the Jeanne and Caro oh, yeah. film, you know, where it's got these yeah. sort of overall colours and it, it's just someone's has gone there with real attention to detail. That, that's one of the things that I've, I've seen in um, in films this year in terms of sci-fi. People trying to get away from um, maybe conventional styles. But I think in, in terms of the visual style, you know, the future's already here. You can just, in a lot of films, you just go into some sort of big office block and just film in the lobby or something, you know, dress it up. As they've done with Star Wars, you know they're filming uh, Andor in the Barbican in in London and places like that. You you can just point the camera in, at interesting places. But I think uh, people have been pushing the envelope this year in terms of uh, trying to maybe not invent new visual styles, but um, do something different. Certainly, and I think this was this was an example. Uh, the creator was an example. I think Asteroid City by Wes Anderson was yes. bad had a very unique uh, visual style, as most of his films do. But it's, you know, this, this was a, a great kind of 1950s attention to detail as well. Anything else on the list, Bob? I've, I've seen um, Asteroid City, which I thought was very interesting, uh, from Wes Anderson. I think it's had um, somewhat mixed reviews. Uh, but mm. I think he's always an interesting director. And this was, uh, it was great fun. You know, huge ensemble cast again. Um, you know, amazing cast, really, when you look at it, uh, you know, that, that he's able to attract. Um, it's very, it's got all the Wes Anderson touches, you know, incredible art direction, the way they've, you know, recreated a particular time and place in the 1950s in the American Southwest. Um, it's filmed in Spain, amazingly, and, you know, you, wow. you did not all this. But, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of finessing with CGI of, of the... Uh, the backgrounds and, and so on, as, as there always is. Um, you know, even down to the kind of signage and, you know, these quaint cabins from the 50s that, that people are staying in. And, you know, it's got all the things, the sort of symmetrical framing, the eccentricity, you know, this kind of yeah. compositions that are very art, sort of artificial. It sounds a bit negative, but, you know, quite constructed and, and deliberate. Um, and, um, yeah, it's an interesting story. It's kind of three romances that are going on. Uh, at, at this sort of junior stargazer event that's held at this place called Asteroid City, which is like, um, you know, meteor crater, essentially. And it's all very fantasy and, um, you know, in, well, a, a kind of maybe Wes Anderson's first full sci-fi, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe um, uh, there are others that, that have gone in that direction. But it's certainly a, 
you know, kind of quite committed sci-fi uh, turn for the director, I think. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. What's happening now? I don't know. So, that's Wes Anderson. Paul, what else have you got for us? You know, I think this year has, has thrown up some interesting films that you wouldn't necessarily think you'd enjoy. But I did uh, in this case, and one of them was The Meg to the Trip. <laughs> Good grief. Um, it's Sorry, interesting. Graham, have you seen it? No. no <laughs> I saw we... the first one, and I thought, what a load of bollocks. Yeah, it's a classic compared to that, but carry on. With with this one, um, interestingly, it's directed by Ben Wheatley, who... Oh, uh, okay, now I'm interested, okay. Very serious uh, films and very, you know, critically acclaimed films in the past. Um, What he's doing here, you know, one one can debate, but uh, I think it's perhaps in, in the same vein as Jaws, where it was kind of an airport novel uh with a very you know competent director i think this is similar it's um maybe uh not the highest brown material uh made by quite quite a clever director okay what's next paul so i thought blue beetle i thought was quite fun a um marvel entry um and it takes a, a kind of character that hasn't really been on screen before I think it's a great vehicle for uh, Cholo Maridueña, who's, uh, if you've seen Cobra Kai on Netflix, um, which was kind of continuation of The Karate Kid, yeah. he's in that, he's the main character in that. I think out of all the Marvel films, that, that was the uh, the one that I uh, sort of connected with me the most, I, I found most enjoyable. It's just, uh, you know, it brings it down to um, down to basics again, in terms of, you know, some of the Marvel films have been often the multiverse and, you know, the the quantum realm and all these other kind of quite distant places. And this was um, perhaps more relatable. And and the only superhero film this year without any mention of an alternative universe. No <laughs> multiverse right. in this. Yeah. I, what I find with a lot of these films, and this is a great example of it, is the villains of what you take away with. I mean, Susan Sarandon and is it Raul Max Trujillo uh, I thought we're both great in this film. Yeah, the young lad of stars is personable, but when you get to these villains who just camp it up fantastically, <laughs> it's it's great. Susan Sarandon, you know, I haven't sort of seen in that sort of role in a while, and she was uh, she was fantastic. Really, really, just uh, you know, great presence, villainous presence throughout yep. the film. You can really, you know, just believe she's not a very nice character, you know. Anything else, or we because uh, we must be running out of them by now. I think we are. I, I mean, one of the ones that I saw was um, was Ant Man Quantumania. Uh, one, one of the interesting things, I suppose, about Ant Man um, was that it was really a, a kind of down to earth, um, you know, ordinary guy. Mm. Uh, you know, is, is drawn into this superhero uh, universe using, uh, you know, real relatable sort of situations and people and so on and i think it's kind of transformed in you know in in this case because it's it's all set in the quantum realm and you know these are kind of alien in in inverted commas characters and you know it just made me wonder 
have they lost what made the Ant-Man movies successful yes. and, and interesting in the first place a little bit with this? Well, so I'm just going to throw two at you before we talk the big guns. 65 and Megan. Did you manage to see those? I did, yeah. Um, I, th- I thought 65 was was interesting. It was very interesting. And, you know, there, there's something to that. You know, the, the, it's a very simple idea. You know, it's kind of Planet of the Apes, essentially, but with dinosaurs and, you, you know, him coming down to Earth and, you know, his connection with, with this uh, this girl and trying to save her um yeah i found it i found it a compelling watch you know adam driver's always very good um you know the dinosaurs the special effects were were great and just having the uh the obvious um sort of macguffin at the end uh yeah. large rock heading for, for earth is you know you, you've got to get that in there haven't you and um yeah there's some interesting kind of uh, imagery to it. I, I, there, there's something I can't get out of my mind, which was that parasite that uh, oh, yeah. picks up, and you know, I just found that oh god. But yeah, it, was, it you know, it had this real sense of threat, didn't it, from the dinosaurs? Yeah. And and I think the casting of Adam Driver, who took it all so seriously, as opposed to somebody like Chris Pratt, who would be winking at the audience as it went through, yeah. really brought you with it. And I jumped a couple, I mean, it's only a 12, but I jumped two, three times watching this film in the cinema. And it's an hour and 30 minutes. It's just brilliant. It just rattles along. And then you've got Megan, uh, we're talking about AI, and you know where it could take toys in the future. But again, it, it plays nicely with, with horror and, and also with corporate, um, the corporate world as to... Uh, the, the victims of Megan, I thought was quite good. Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm, both physical and emotional. Is that a doll? Model 3 generative. Android. Megan, for short. I can't believe you made this. I love it. Wanna hang out, yeah, sounds like fun. Great job. It's nice to have a friend. It's honestly like she's part of the family now. They could be building emotional connections that are too hard to untangle. She's the happiest she's been since her parents died. Eat the toppings, Katie. Research shows if you force a child to eat vegetables, they'll be less likely to choose those foods as adults. Is that so? Yes. Experts say... Megan, turn off. I thought we were having a conversation. Yeah, it was a fantastic little movie, wasn't it? I I was really surprised by it. And, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting that much, but, uh, I I mean, it it just... It it hit all all the right notes, um, you know, just about... The, the the issues around AI and the risks and and just the interactions I, I think a lot of films a bit like the creator are are really getting at a more nuanced um, vision of how you know people might interact with with kind of very human like uh, machines in future you know I think that's been touched on in the past but you know uh, Steven Spielberg's AI uh, did that a little bit. Uh, but I think in you know the, it, it was also a little bit disconnected because you o- you only largely see it from uh, the the AI's point of view. I think this was a very interesting um, look at uh, you know how uh, these attachments that we might form, um, you know, and, and kind of yes, we know it's an automaton, but there, there's 
a kind of level of instinct and that hind brain that makes us see that um that that it's a human as well you know and and, and it really played with that i think it was a a wonderful film and i really got a, a lot of menace out of this uh this doll it was you know ch- it reminded me of child's play you know the the movies back in, in the 80s yeah, yeah. but it, it was yeah. you know it was, it was fantastic done so we've come to the big one then that we haven't mentioned, the one that made almost a billion dollars, Oppenheimer. What do you think? Do you think it captured something? It certainly captured something at the box office. Yeah, it did. I, I mean, it's amazing. As, as you said, um, you know, a, a man losing his security clearance, you know, being being the biggest, <laughs> uh, biggest film of the year. Um, I, I mean, I, I jest. I mean, it's, it, obviously, it's a fantastic story and fantastically conceived in the way it was told. I mean, it was really, really compelling. Um, just held your attention um, so well. And I think if you, you know, you know a little bit, bit about the science as well, you, you, you get all these characters like Feynman turning up, you yeah. know, Jack Wade playing him, and and these other people, Girdle and and. All, all these people who are kind of involved in the Manhattan Project and, and people who weren't like Einstein. Um, and it's just, it, it really takes you back into that that world. It's a very complex, he, he was a complex character, obviously, and it, it, it's a complicated task to make a film about him and um, sort of do it justice, do, do the subject justice. Um, and I, I think Christopher Nolan has taken, you know, certain creative decisions with that and you know it, it is what it is I, I think it's a it's an amazing biopic um just one, one of the best that I've seen in, in in terms of just holding the attention and you know constantly surprising you in terms of the direction that that, that it goes um you know it's not a lot of biopics bi- kind of tend to go into this kind of episodic um you know he the this happened and then this mm. happened and then, you know, it's quite sort of stark transitions. This all, all flowed uh, amazingly and just told you this very complex story. Um, I mean, who, who but Christopher Nolan could, could make a film that makes that much money at the box office about physicists. It, it's <laughs> staggering. I just want to finish up then. I'm just going to give you a couple of titles of films coming next year. What are these would you fancy? Dune part two? Madam Web, Godzilla versus Kong, The New Empire, Furioso, and Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Any of those you're looking forward to then, Paul? Yeah, a few of those. I think Dune 2 uh, is the most obvious one for me. I, I, th- I was, you know, uh, Dune 1 was just brilliant, uh, an amazing uh, adaptation of the book um, done by someone who, you know, Denis Villeneuve, who really cares about the material and, and, and has had this sort of percolating in his head for decades really and um i i can't wait to see what the the second part is like um and and also you know whether it um i think there are plans already for a, a tv series uh but whether there are any any of the other books um you know spawn adaptations too after that we'll, we'll have to see yeah they have they've started filming it. it's about the benny jesuit i think isn't it the, mm. the tv yeah. series yeah yeah, yeah. Um, Villeneuve said he wants to do Doom Messiah, so yep. uh, I'll be interested where that goes because so, that's the end of Paul's story, really. Doom Messiah. Yeah. Spoiler yeah. alert for anybody who doesn't know that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> anybody hasn't read a book written in 1966. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. 
Um, but personally, after Oppenheimer, I'm looking forward to some someone filming the life story of Musk. That was great. <laughs> Elon Musk. I think that 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 is on on the slate, isn't it? There, is it? There's uh, there's talk about a Musk film. How to um... how to attract advertisers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what about yourself, Paul? Any plans for 2024? Is it too early yet to um, to, to talk about them? Oh, um, in in terms of um, of, of films, I, uh, films I, or whatever, really. Yeah, I, I I don't really have anything planned. I mean, I I think there there are some interesting um, sort of science stories that I guess I'll I'll cover when when they come up. Um, one of them is the Artemis two uh, mission, which uh, well we assume it's happening next year. There are all, all, always uh, the potential for slips. Um, this is the first. Uh, human crewed uh, mission to the moon uh, since 1972. It won't land. It's similar to Apollo 8. Uh, it will just go around the moon. Um, but, uh, you know, it's pretty significant in terms of America's plans to kind of build up what it says is a sustainable presence at the moon. Um, I mean, the part we, we've been talking about, Musk, and uh, the big part, uh, is Artemis three, of course, and that's supposed to take Musk's uh, starship as the lander, you know, instead of the uh, spindly sort of lem that they they had uh, for for the nineteen uh, sixties Apollos. This will take you know starship and try and deposit it on on the moon, uh, the south pole of the moon. It's incredibly, you know, when you look at the details of it, it's just incredibly ambitious. No, I, I, the one thing that fascinates me, and I look forward to seeing more of this in 2024, is what the Indians are doing. Yeah, I mean, the budget they're using, the results they get in, that's got to be fantastic. No, it is. And and they're working on their um, on their own. Yeah, as, you, as you've probably seen, uh, it's called Gaganyan. It's a, a human mission. So, you know, they, they've effectively become, I think, the fourth, um, you know, country to, to put humans in space. Yeah. So they're, they're gradually, you know, steadily building, you know, they're going to have, they've got all these milestones. They successfully completed one in terms of the escape system recently. And they're just going to pass through all these milestones in, in, until they, they have a, a first orbital pl- flight. And then, you know, seeing the, the incredible state of the space program, what they've achieved on the moon, where, you know, a lot of other people have failed. Um, I, I can believe they're they're just going to have success after success. It's just the sheer level of planning they do. You know, they've got a, a an objective, and they've got millions of little points they need to get to, and they just keep knocking them down. And it's just, you know, they'll be teaching this as project planning one hundred and one in universities for the rest, of, you know, in the future because. They do. They plan each spot and they say, right, we're going to get to this point. And now what do we learn from that? And what does that lead us on to next? And OK, and now that's just wonderful. And I've been really enjoying everything they've been doing. Yeah. Oh, well, Paul, it's been an absolute privilege. We look forward to talking to you at uh, these these films we mentioned at various points in 2024, if that's OK with you. I'd love to. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on and uh, I've loved the discussion and I'd love to be on again. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. A real pleasure to talk to you. And we look forward to discussing some of the 2024 features with you in the near future. Regular listeners to the show will need no reminding about the Phil and Jeff discussions. Don't you mean confrontations? 
good point. Let's settle on heated discussions. Heated discussions about the merits of Wes Anderson and the films of Billy Wilder, which star William Holden. Recently, Netflix released all four Roald Dahl shorts directed by Wes Anderson. We thought it would be a good opportunity to have the dynamic duo review those, plus the last film in which William Holden starred for Billy Wilder. Grab your popcorn, make sure the kids can't listen, and settle in for the face-off you didn't know you needed. Over to Jeff to set the mood. Regular listeners will know that Phil and I have different tastes in movies. None more pronounced than the unofficial face-off between the films of director Billy Wilder, with lead star William Holden, which I love, and the films of Wes Anderson since Grand Budapest Hotel, which Phil loves. In different shows this year, Phil and I have argued over the merits, or lack of, of Stalag 17 and Asteroid City. Well, as a year-end treat... I've brought the band back together for the ultimate, read last, showdown. It's Fedora against the Anderson Netflix shorts. There's Phil over in the blue corner. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Hi. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to it. (laughs) I'm sitting in the red corner, and referee in this event is Graham, who's the right height to make sure there are no low blows. (laughs) (laughs) So... The order of play is going to be as follows. Uh, Fedora, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, the rat catcher, the swan and poison. Okay, let's start. Fedora. I'd like to see Madame Fedora. Not here. Dr. Vander may be a miracle worker, but even he cannot disguise the age of a woman's hands. I guess time catches up with all of us. Not you, Fedora. You look no different than you did 30 years ago. This was Billy Wilder's penultimate feature, made back in 1978, and of course stars the legendary William Holden in one of his last films. For those that haven't seen it, Fedora, as played by German actress Marth Keller, was a big star in her day, with a beauty that transcended time. However, as the film opens, Fedora commits suicide by jumping in front of a train, like Phil after watching one of these William Holden movies. (laughs) Then the story flashes back two weeks to tell the story leading up to that tragic end. A down-at-heel movie producer, played, of course, by Mr Holden, travels to Corfu to try to persuade the reclusive Fedora to come back for one more movie. But he soon realises that all is not right with the once great star. This movie may not be Wilder at his best, and in a sense it reflects where he was in his career. However, I think it remains a fascinating insight into star power and movie making at the time. Now we're going to discuss this in a bit of detail, and there is a twist in Fedora, so if you haven't seen it, we will be discussing that, so I would recommend you just go off and watch the film first. It's all right though, because the twist is so obvious that it won't matter too much. Right, okay, well let's start with that then. When I first saw this film, back in 1979, that twist absolutely floored me i did not see it coming so you saw that coming then did you like miles away it's like it's like within the first 15 minutes of the film um i don't know if that's like so one of the things um that's really kind of 
I don't know, it's sort of semi-interesting and aside, is there was a video game last year called Immortality, which Jeff won't have played under any circumstances. <laughs> um, and it's far more interesting than this. <laughs> so so the theme, the storyline of Immortality is that it's an actress who appears across four films by this director across about 50-year period, but she always looks the same. And it's quite a really, it's quite an interesting video game. It's got a better explanation for why she's the same age throughout. But I just, as I was watching this, because I'd played that video game last year, I was like, oh, okay, I know what happens. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. So... In the grand scheme of things, then, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17 and Fedora, where does this rank? Number one for you, Phil? Uh, um, no. So so my, my main issue with this one, so, so if I'm going to rank those three films, I'd go Sunset Boulevard, maybe this one, and then Stalag 17, but... I'm not sure, might switch those last two. But my issue with this one is I just thought it was a redo of Sunset Boulevard, um, which I thought was your set-up trap for me because I thought that you were just going to say Wes Anderson makes the same films over and over. <laughs> and I, and I, I was watching it and I was like, oh, no, he's like he's really he's been really clever and thought this through because I'm going to say this is identical to Sons. He's remade his own film, and you're going to trick me with Wes Anderson just does the same thing over and over. No, um, no, no. It, it, it's based on a book by Thomas Tryon, which came out a couple of years before. And in fact, um, a chap who worked on the film has now written a book called Billy Wilder and Me, which is all about the making of Fedora which I haven't read yet. Um, it was a Radio 4 book of the week not so long ago, so it's definitely one I want to catch up with. But I think the reason he did this, I, I, I think you've got a fair point there. You know, it does play a bit like uh, a remake of Sunset Boulevard because he hadn't had a hit since, I think, 1966 with The Fortune Cookie when he first brought together Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Every, everything since then hadn't worked for him. He And he really struggled to get finance for this film. He wanted, you know, the big studios to promote it. They wouldn't. Uh, it's a lot of independent money went into it. Uh, I think he was quite bitter as well. There's that wonderful line in the script, the kids with beards have taken over, you know, reference to Coppler and even when Spielberg had his beard and George Lucas at that time. So there was a, a bitterness to it. But I don't think it's as dark in some well, sense, it's not. It feels as dark. more glitzy, right? Uh, yeah. So, so I think it's, I think it's well made, and it looks really good, um, and it feels like a more glamorous version of Hollywood, like because Fedora is a more glamorous star and what have you. Um, but I thought the themes were still kind of the same about kind of female actresses trying to, you know, they're thrown away at a certain point and um, trying to maintain their allure, and he's like a, so in sunset he's a writer trying to get his break and he just can't quite make it whereas in this he's kind of like at the other end of his career and he's kind of like he's trying to reimagine or sort of relive his sort of successful era and he's like i'll go to the biggest star so i kind of felt that those two themes were the same like so she was trying to keep her allure and her star and he was trying to get a success in hollywood albeit in Sunset, it's his first success, and in this, it's kind of a last hurrah type thing. 
and and at the end he sort of plays along with it and does if you like falls into the sunset trap of saying you know i'll i'll be complicit in the cover-up i mean the one thing when i first saw it and it and it was even worse for me as i said the twist really caught me by surprise when i first saw the film but after the twist it then takes too long to explain things it doesn't need that length that it goes through mm, and yeah. and the reveal is oh that's not fedora i'm fedora well you don't need to do the double reveal all you need to do at that point is the reveal of the woman in the coffin's not fedora you then play out how she become fedora and then the old without showing you know the old woman becoming the old woman if you like you somehow work out that she then gets everything else that happens to her later on you know how she ended up in the wheelchair becomes much later and then her final reveal is i'm actually fedora and i think yeah. that would have played better yeah i mean so so I, prefer, I I'm thinking about it now, and, and so I liked how it looked. I liked um, that it was sort of you know, it's a well made picture. It feels prestige, right? As you're watching it, um, yeah. I didn't think I didn't think the reveal was shocking. I thought it was kind of obvious. I thought the themes were the same. Um, I did think William Holden was better, actually. Like you know, twenty years. I don't know how how far apart of Sunset and this. Like it feels like he's. Because I've always uh, every, 20, was, 28 years later. Yeah, because yeah, 59 when he made this. Yeah. So every time I've seen William Holden, for me, he's always the old man. Even when he's in his twenties, he looks like an old man. <laughs> yeah. And and um and I think he's grown in like it feels like he's actually grown into that role that he's always kind of played. Um but yeah, it didn't grab me, but it is uh Stalag 17, just a constant sort of weirdness of like the comedy to the situation they were in, like the tonal kind of jumps just ruined it completely for me. Whereas at least this was, you know what you're getting. It's kind of, it's a a mystery and yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think I am going to say sunset this, then Stalag. A couple of things and then we'll move on. So I think that that's, I I see this as a draw here. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to watch it again, Jeff. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, maybe not a draw then. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did you spot the shining moment? Which Uh, was the shining hadn't been made by the time this came out. No, I was going to say, no, the only things that like I thought were really cheesy was, uh, is it Peter Fonda and, uh, Michael York? Henry Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the shining moment then? That when he goes through the books and every book has written the words "I am Fedora." Oh, I am Fedora. I am Fedora. I am Fedora. Yeah, yeah. And I had a, a shining flashback at that point, <laughs> but the shining was made a couple of years later. Um, yeah, they, it got a lot of flack at the time for using Michael York, and they said again it shows that he really struggled to get the money, and I think that's unfair because. When in the film they talk about bringing a fedora back, they, she gets a small part in an Italian film, then she goes into a British film, and that would have been about 10 years prior to this. Where and Michael York was a big star, he's a big up and coming star then. So I, I didn't feel that that was a problem. Michael York never struck me as like ever a big star, like about maybe well, that's because I've, I've missed his sort of rise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was at the tail end. I remember Logan's Run, um, but yeah, no. Throughout the seventies in Britain, it, it, 
prestige pictures, Michael York was usually in them. Mm, yeah. Um, so I, I didn't have a problem with that. The Henry Fonda bit, and I take your point on that, but that moment for me, Miklos Rose's score with that track, the Oscar, I think is amazing. I think it's one of Rose's certainly better later moments of scoring. But yeah, no, no, that's good. Okay, well, I, I'm quite pleased with that. I'll take that as a as a near draw. Okay, but let's let's be clear though. It's not like um, the apartment or um, some like it. Some hot. like it hot, is it? I mean, he never. He's never. I don't know. I don't think he ever reached those heights again after those. Uh, have you ever seen Ace in the Hole? You know the answer, Jeff. There's no, is it? <laughs> yeah. So it's no. So so if you want to do another one in a few months. <laughs> well, yeah, that, but yeah, I think we will because Ace in the Hole is one of my 10 favourite films of all time. Wow, okay. It's got Kirk Douglas in that one. Okay. We'll go with that. Criterion done a marvellous version of that, by the way. Anyway, we'll put Billy Wilder to one side and we'll talk Wes Anderson and his role Dahl films. Now, this is a deal Anderson agreed with Netflix to make four short films based on Roald Dahl stories. Many think of Dahl as a writer of children's tale, and indeed Anderson has previously filmed a rather good movie, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Obviously, that was before Grand Budapest Hotel when it all went wrong. <laughs> However, these, these are more general and darker tales and much more representative of Dahl's work. Think Tales of the Unexpected. So let's start with the longest the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, which clocks in at 37 minutes. It's based on a 1977 short story. And this is the type of narrative that Wes Anderson loves, a multi-layered one. As with all of those tales, Ralph Fiennes plays Dahl, who then narrates the life of Henry Sugar, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, a rich playboy who finds a book about a great mystic called Imdad Khan, Ben Kingsley, who also tells his part of the story, and Khan had found a way to see without using his eyes. And Henry decides to learn the technique and use it for gambling. So, Phil, your thoughts on this one? This was my favourite of the four, definitely. Um, I think, obviously, he's got a bit more time to kind of sort of mm. um, flesh out the story. I really loved, I think it goes through all of them, I really loved the stage play element of it. So the way that the... Um, sets and things are moving around um really reminded me of the life aquatic where they're sort of traversing the ship and kind of um as with everything anderson he kind of always does like the the camera can only move on a horizontal or vertical plane and he kind of uh, yeah as they move around and stuff and i loved the narration i i really enjoyed um I think it was uh, probably in some of the other short stories where the, one of the actors is actually narrating the story. As yeah. they sort of or, or as I like to think of them, Phil, audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Jeff. So, I mean, yeah, so I loved it. I mean, um, yeah, it's it's classic Anderson, isn't it? And Fantastic Mr. Fox is one of, like, my favourite Anderson films. I think him and Dahl work really well with this sort of... Dahl's kind of slightly bizarre strange stories with Anderson's very curious peculiar idiosyncratic sort of filming style I think they just they work really well together um Ralph Fiennes 
I think is brilliant. Um, so Ralph Fiennes and Rupert Friend are the only people across these features that have been previous Anderson films, which is quite unusual for him. But then he then does what he always does, where um, there's about five actors who are, or, or at least are in at least two of each of the the sort of shows um, with fines across. I think all of them. I think fines is in. I think Henry Sugar is the best one. I think just because it's got more time to breathe. Benedict Cumberbatch is really really good, um, and I just love all the quirky, idiosyncratic sort of camera moves, narration, etc. But that goes across all four of the short films. Okay. My wife called this quite fun. She enjoyed it. Um, And I can see how it builds on themes of relationships and the meaning of life that you got in films like The Darjeeling Effect. Mm. Um, It very much reminded me of that. Um, As I said, it's it's an audio book brought to life. Um, And Ben Kingsley, though, was so dull. I almost fell asleep at one point. What? (laughs) That's. I mean, I thought that was a really fun part. That was the the bit where they they're in the forest doing yes. the story. There, I thought that was a really fun bit. Yeah. But I thought this was possible. It's not my favourite of the four. Um, but I, yeah, I could see the themes that he's picked up in other films had come out in this. So if you took Ben Kingsley out of it, yeah, it was all right. So what I would what I would say is interesting about the favourite sort of bit. So I watched these with my kids. Um, so we watched Henry Sugar, and then the next evening we watched the three short ones um, all back to back. And the, between the three of us, we all thought this was the best one. But of the next three, we all had a different order, which I thought was quite fun. Oh, right. Okay. Let's go. Let's go on to the next one then. The Swan. Again, from a 1977 collection of short stories, 70 minutes long, based on a true event. Young Peter, played as a child by Peter Watson and as an adult by Rupert Friend, is bullied and tortured by three local youths. Things reach ahead when one of the bullies shoots a swan. So, Phil, whose favourite was this? Uh, So this was third on my list, and I think that this was my daughter's well, my daughter's favourite after Henry Sugar. I really liked this one. Um, I thought, so it's not my third favourite, but Rupert Friend, I thought was brilliant because especially when he does the different voices, which I thought was really good. And then again, um, there's a bit where um, he's walking down like a corridor of like, is it wheat or like a field or something? And the the stage prop guys kind of open a door in the props and kind of hand him something yeah. and stuff, stuff like that. I loved all that sort of stuff. And I really liked the kind of metaphor at the end about, you know, what the swan was kind of thing. Um, but yeah, this was probably, I thought, the slightest one in terms of, it was mostly Rupert Friend, almost like a one-man show, kind of doing it all. But, um, yeah, again, lots of fun. Okay. My wife described this as awful, and who am I to disagree? <laughs> it it looked cheap. It felt much better suited as an audio book. Oh, I think cool. the juxtaposition between the adult and child Peter took me out of the story. And I'd have preferred a much more violent ending to the story, rather. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have been my daughter's favourite then if it had been much more violent. <laughs> she wouldn't have got to see it. It doesn't look cheap. I mean, they all look 
of the same thing, aren't they? Because it's virtually the same sets and kind of the same feel, yeah. look and feel. Well, you know, at least in this one, all the props were visible. More on that in a minute. <laughs> Just jump in between the two characters. Been a good audio book. <laughs> I think that's... Is that what you're going to say for all of them? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so The Rat Catcher, uh, short story first published in 1954, 17 minutes long. So basically a rat catcher uh, played by uh, Ralph Fiennes mm. is hired by two guys to sort out a um, a rat problem they've got. Oh, dear me. Right, that's about it for that one. Uh, <laughs> this, you know, this, this, one. this was my second favourite. I mm. love this one. Um, so Ralph Fiennes really gets to have a lot of fun. I thought he was really, really good in it because obviously he's Roald Dahl in the others. But this one, he gets to really sort of have a lot of fun. And um, you get to have a little bit of animation as well. So um, obviously since... You've got Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox, but even in Asteroid City and um, uh, The Life Aquatic, you have sort of animated bits, don't you? Um, so you get a nice little animated rat uh, sort of about two-thirds of the way through, which I thought was really good fun. Um, and I just thought that Ralph Fiennes... This one, for me, was not so much about the story, but just Ralph Fiennes' character and how peculiar he was, and I really enjoyed it. Um, well, my wife didn't wouldn't watch it. She wouldn't watch I, the last I, two. I, I this is my favourite. I like. Is it? There was a little mystery at the end. So why didn't the rats come out of the haystack? What's... Oh, uh, the the answer's in another short story. There's, there was a dead body in there. There you go. So uh, I can't remember the name of that short story. It was in my notes that I've accidentally deleted. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I just thought. It was tedious. It was, oh, no. you know, let's bring out the rat poison. Oh, no, there's nothing in my hand, but I'll make you believe there is. It's like Brexit. And, <laughs> um, and then, you know, Ralph, Again, though, it's just it's uh, a Ralph stage Fiennes, show. Then with, it? It's presented like a stage show. I thought that was good. Yeah. Do you know why they, had all, they couldn't afford those props? Because they spent all that money on that silly animated rat. <laughs> that they then used a model for. Uh, I mean, you've got a couple of good actors in there, Ralph Fiennes, Rupert Friend. Then you've got that really annoying, what's his name, Richard? Richard Ar- Aowardi. Aowardi. Uh, it's just like, He's really? Great. He's funny. Dev Patel, who who obviously wasn't in this one, but is in a couple of the others, I think we'll talk about him for the next one. Dev Patel is really good. I think I would, I would like to see Dev Patel in, in like yes. another Wes Anderson. Yes, me too. I, I think he's gearing up. What's he got next? Anyway, what is his next film? Uh, isn't it a musical? I'm sure he's meant to be doing a musical. Well, IMDb doesn't have him as a, anything in the works. but No, thought, I'm just looking at that now. Yeah. I thought he was... Uh, I'm sure he was meant to be doing a musical. Maybe I just dreamed that because I think a Wes Anderson musical would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, but no, the Ralph Catcher. I mean, with all, all look, I've got this rat poison. No, you haven't. There's nothing in your hand. I thought he it, said the Ralph Catcher. He did say the Ralph Catcher. The he Ralph was, Catcher. He was thinking he was embodying Ralph Fiennes in his Wait, role. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just, just, just. Uh, yeah, no, it really didn't work for me. And as a, it's an audio story. It's That's not. All. 
there's so much going on on the visuals. It's just great fun. There aren't any visuals, Graham, because they're making it up. There's no, there's a little toy rat there that they move around. And then most of it is like, it's not even there. They're pretending to have rat poison. Look at this in my hand. It's really frightening. No, there's nothing there, Ralph. Jesus. No, it was awful. It was fine. It was so your favourite. I should have guessed. Okay, let's go to the next one, which thankfully I haven't overwritten my notes on. And I actually liked Poison. A uh, short story, first published in 1950, 70 minutes long. Uh, it's previously been filmed by Alfred Hitchcock for Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, for American TV back in the 50s. Set during Indian colonial rule, Harry, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, is an ex-soldier who's relaxing in his bed reading. When his friends Woods, Dev Patel, arrives at his house, he finds Harry in a state of panic. As he says, a poisonous snake has slithered onto his stomach under the covers. You've been bitten by a crike. Where? How long ago? What? Didn't bite yet. That confused me. I gave Harry a funny look. Crike on stomach. Asleep. I jumped backwards. I couldn't help it. I stared at his stomach, or rather at the rumpled sheet that covered it. It was impossible to tell if there was something underneath. Phil, whose favourite was this? Uh, so my son liked this one, um, but I thought it, it was the least good of the four. Of course, because it's um, like a normal film, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I really liked Dev Patel. I mentioned that just now. I thought he was really, really good. Again, he was kind of doing the narration... Um, I, I really liked that weird kind of like thing where he sort of says what he's going to do as he does it yes. sort of thing. Yeah, I that thought was that was fun. really quirky and enjoyable. Um, I thought that Benedict Cumberbatch uh, was kind of a bit too stern and perhaps not as likeable as you might want him to be for this particular role. And I thought that the payoff at the end, wasn't as fun as, say, no. The Swan. No, um, the payoff at the end is woke. <laughs> is woke. <laughs> woke. Because, no, 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 hear me out, hear me out, right? So this is set in India, obviously towards the end of Indian colonial rule, the late 47, 48. So it's set around that time. And he's clear, a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen it, he's clearly imagined the snake. It was never there. And when Ben Kingsley comes along, who is very good in this, actually, he kept me awake in this one. Uh, he comes along and tells him it wasn't. Uh, do, you, do you think it was ever there? He berates him, but he berates him in a way that's you know modern day wokeism, not the language he would have used at the time. And language that if I use now, Graham would beep. So there's no point <laughs> me even saying it. But why? Why is it better if he was like rude than if he wasn't? I don't get it. Because no, because then that to me would give a very clear indication of how the Indians were treated by the uh, you know by the British settlers and certainly by a lot of um, the military that were in India at the time and how they looked down on them. I'm going to dig out. I think I have somewhere the Alfred Hitchcock version of this. So I'm going to have a look at that and see how he ends it, because I think it would have been much more in keeping with that period. Now, I don't know how 
um, Dahl ended his original story. I know it was the ending was changed a little bit in terms of the tone. I mean, the end result with the snake is the same, but the the berating that takes place, he almost plays that down. Um, whereas I think the ending here was good when Kingsley goes off, knowing that you know he'd been downtrodden by by Cumberpatch. And, but I would have liked to have seen that done how it would have been done because it would have made it all the more shocking. Mm. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed it. I was really caught up in the way the story went, um, you know, with the whole thing of is there a snake there? How are they going to get that out? If it's that poisonous, you know, it, it's probably going to kill him. Even though, and I think your point is is well made, Cumberpatch is not a particularly pleasant person. Yeah, I think one of the things I find interesting as a Wes Anderson groupie is I kind of watch these things because for me, it's actors have to fit into the Anderson mold, right? To sort of fit into and kind of work in his films. And when I look at the new, so obviously Fines and Rupert Friends have been in previous Anderson films. So you know, they kind of know what's going on. But when I look at the other four, because you've got like Ben Kingsley, Richard Iwadi, um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Dev Patel, I would say that Benedict Cumberbatch is the least likely to return, probably because he's huge, right, and, and might have other thing jobs on and stuff. But I think if you look at the way that Dev Patel and Ben Ben Kingsley sort of you know, do in these films, I could see them appearing in you know, multiple Wes Anderson films because they just get it and kind of fit into that mould. Not that, not to say that Cumberbatch isn't really, really good. He's great in Henry Sugar. But I just think that those are the ones that I kind of see return. But otherwise, it's everything... I, I mean, I knew, I knew you wouldn't like it, Jeff, because it's so Anderson in terms of that kind of... You know, the way that it's metronomic in terms of camera moves and peculiarities and the way that the 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 characters speak in a certain cadence all that sort of stuff um never gets old for me don't tell me the story show me the visuals otherwise it's an audiobook and i think in that last one they concentrated more on the visuals but the visuals in anderson are more about um the kind of pastel hues the the camera movements and the sort of intricacies of the set design. I mean, the if you look at the sets, I know like it's like it's almost like a stage play recorded, but the sets are got loads of going on in them, just like really unique and interesting. And when you've got the stage hands coming on and handing props and stuff and appearing out of little doors in the in the sort of background, I think that's lots of fun. I think you're, you're, you really are overthinking it, Jeff. It's just... Well, really say, I'm overthinking it by saying it's narrated in such a way that there are audiobooks. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, if if I listen to Dev Patel for two hours on an audiobook speaking in that clipped cadence, that would drive me mad. It's And the cadence goes with the, the moving uh, sets and and the weird way that people can walk through walls and the colour and the lighting and the and the geometric shapes are just out of control. All of that is just interesting to the eye. 
and I don't see how it's an audiobook because my eye was totally entertained while I was watching this thing. Mine started to droop. Um... <laughs> so, so what we're saying, so the four Wes Anderson shorts, probably total time, probably less runtime than Fedora, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are. So the bang for your buck that you get is way, way more. <laughs> so we've got one that's really good, which I, I really like, and one that's, yeah, passable. I see the themes from his other works in there, and two that are complete bollocks. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Harsh. <laughs> yeah, harsh to use one of your own phrases, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, but, you know. We've ended on a positive one. <laughs> uh, so there we are. As it's the festive period, we have found some common ground. Phil has raved about Fedora, and I've quite liked one of Wes Anderson shorts. So it's just like those troops in 1914 on that Christmas Eve. We agree on something. As, wow. As Tiny Tim says at the end of A Christmas Carol, God bless us, everyone. And on that festive note, back to the show. Thanks, guys, I think. That's a good time for a break and for everyone's nerves to calm down. Come back tomorrow and we'll reveal everyone's top five films of the year. <laughs>